Good morning, church. Our scripture this morning is from the book of Proverbs. It's uh, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom and incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood and sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your ears to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner, and at the end of your life you groan, When your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hate a discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for the strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cord of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. This is God's word. Got a standing mic today, so I don't get to roam near you today, which could be good or bad, depending on how you look at that. But uh, let me make this immediate disclaimer before we kind of launch into today's message. Uh, This message is rated PG-13. All right, let me just throw that out there. It's right in your bulletin. It's right at the very top. Hopefully you noticed PG-13 due to sexual content, adult situations, and mediocre humor as well. But, but, but let me just be very honest with you because I'm looking out there and I do see a few kids here and there. For families, we have ministries available from ages 0 to 12 and would recommend that you take them at this time because in a few minutes, you're going to find out where they came from. Maybe a little bit earlier than you anticipated explaining this to them, you know, like during a retreat or special time over dinner, that sort of thing. So, and and let me say this too, and more immediately, they may hear something you don't yet wish for them to hear, and that is that no one, not even their daddy, not even their mommy, is immune from the temptation to infidelity. So, Scott loves Sherry, but even as she was her boss at work, she acted like the boss at home, and he got tired of being told what to do. So like many men, he he turned inward, and he started hanging out with his buddies at the fire station because he was a volunteer firefighter. He would drink with them, hang with them. He'd pretend to get called in to the fire station even when he wasn't, in fact, called in. He'd head out to his local bar with them afterwards, and he'd take comfort in people who really kind of understood him. And one of those people who would understand him was a a woman. He had close family members 
who'd fallen into this temptation before, and he swore he would never be that kind of husband, and yet here he was in the parking lot at a motel about to join with another woman. Fifteen years into her marriage with her husband, Lisa's heart began to grow cold. He worked long and often very odd hours, and in his spare time, he would volunteer at their local church. And how was he supposed to argue with that, right? I mean, after all, he's doing God's work, and he's spreading the message about the good news of Jesus. So Lisa began to confide in a friend who'd who'd called her about a ministry project at their church. This person was very kind and understanding. Unfortunately, no one ever told her about the dangers of confiding in the opposite sex. And her friend, you see, was a man. She told herself she was never going to be that lonely wife who sort of just got tempted and cheated on her husband. So she carried on the relationship. But at first, the phone calls were innocent. But then she began to sort of look forward to the phone calls every week as the highlight of that week. There was no, you know, physical intimacy but she noticed him looking at her at church on Sundays, and she enjoyed the attention. The only touch was a a public hug during greetings like the one we just had, or the occasional brush against his hand. She thought very little of it until the day he approached her and finally said, I think I'm in love with you. She thought to herself, oh my gosh, what have I done? Besides these stories both being true and not altogether surprising for those of us who are married, each of these accounts has something in common, that this naive belief that infidelity will never happen to us. It won't happen to me. I will never be that person. Now, now Proverbs chapter 5, the second half of chapter 6, and all of chapter 7 contain nothing but, but warnings from a father to a son about adultery. So it's, it's obviously very serious in terms of getting wisdom for this temptation from father to son. And he's still a young man, but this son wasn't necessarily exhibiting signs of you know, heightened sort of perversion. Nor, was, nor did this dad find the son alone in his room looking at etchings of naked Egyptian women. Like that, he thought, oh my gosh, I got I to gotta bust off three chapters now about warnings to my son. Now he was... He was normal. He was like any person. He was like us, vulnerable. And that is what all of us are, vulnerable. So our focus this morning is a bit more narrow because Proverbs devotes so much wisdom, warning, and counsel to this topic of adultery. I'm not going to talk this morning about when it's right to break off a marriage and under what conditions, nor am I going to talk about how you should respond if adultery is committed against you and the forgiveness that's available through Jesus Christ. We're not going to specifically talk about that. Instead, we're going to get prepared to fight like crazy to remain faithful to one man or one woman for all of our days. So we're first going to hear in Proverbs, as we did, about the motivation for monogamy. And we're also going to hear about a couple strategies to fight for our marriage, to fight to stay monogamous. So first, the motivation for monogamy. The father, after a few kind of introductory words about wisdom, he really starts in earnest by talking about the other woman. The other woman. But, but notice, not what she will do to her son, but what will become of her. Which is interesting, right? It says in verse 4, let's read that through verse 6. In the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. 
Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. It's interesting because you'd think the father would say, you know what, son, if, if you cheat on your wife with this woman, that woman you go to and whose arms you find comfort, she'll end up cheating on you too. She'll cause you heartache. She's going to bring death to all parts of your life. But it's interesting, the father focuses not on his son's destiny, but on hers, which seems peculiar. But wisdom is hinting at a profound truth and our motivation for staying faithful, which is you become that to which you unite yourself. As a husband, as a wife, you become that to which you unite yourself. And our culture will say, well, you know what? It's just sex. It's just sex. And some of us have repeated that mantra, right? That it's just one flirtation, one fling. It'll never happen again. Remember, it's just sex. But the Apostle Paul expands upon what's hinted at here in Proverbs. Look at this, 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 16. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. And just as a side note, it doesn't matter so much that he's talking about a prostitute. In this specific instance, that's what the Corinthians were struggling with. But it could be any woman he is not married to, any woman. Shall I take them the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So people hear that term a lot, right? The two will become one flesh. They think, oh, when someone says that, they're talking about marriage. No. They're talking about sex. They're talking about sex. It refers to sex. It's that to whom you you unite yourself through that physical consummation. And it doesn't have to be to your wife. So if, if you commit adultery, it's not just like any other sin. We often like to say that, but it's not just like any other sin, like lying, cheating, or getting angry with someone. Uniting yourself to someone else is an almost indissoluble bond. There's a mysterious but real sense in which you are bonding your destiny to theirs, which is why Solomon is describing this woman's destiny to his son. He's saying, because in all likelihood, you'll end up like her too. If you have sexual relationships with her, if you have sexual relations with her, if you have this relationship on the side, you'll end up like her. Also, you're going to turn into someone forced to become also adept at smooth words and deceit. You'll, you'll, you'll become increasingly numb with those, while those closest to you experience you like the pain of a sword. All your actions begin to hurt. Everything about you becomes dead, so you no longer can tell the difference between right and wrong. In other words, all the things that, that happen to this woman, all the deadness, all the wrong ways, all the pain she causes, a man will also become. He becomes like that to which he unites himself. That's the motivation for monogamy, is looking at the trajectory of the other person's life. That's what wisdom is telling us here. It's a, it's a warning siren. Don't go there. That's one, one thing, the, the motivation, looking at the trajectory of your life, realizing that if you unite yourself through sex, you're uniting yourself down a path of death. So I'm a sportsman, and having grown up in the United States, I was fed on a steady diet of American sports. 
I know for better or for worse, some of you are very disgruntled by that and wish that's not making basketball analogies. But I'm not today, because upon moving to Cayman in 2010, there was one world sport that really has begun to capture my heart, despite all the Vuvuzelas present in 2010, by the way, the World Cup, and that is football. The real football, yes. I'll say that as an American, the real football, because it's, I'm, I'm now okay to say that American football is played mostly with your hands and big, beefy muscles. But to be a great football or soccer club, I've realized watching more and more, talking to other people who know the sport, you need a great strategy, both defensive and offensive. So right now, those of you who love the sport, Atletico Madrid is probably the best defensive club in the world, or at least in Europe. And part of what makes them great is they're well-drilled, and each man is totally sold out to defending his part of the field. For their toughest matches, they play a unique defense called a 4-1-4-1. And that one man behind each line serves as sort of that last defense, and he's often one of their most talented players. They have a scheme to defend their goal. Now, Barcelona FC, I know this is debatable. Please grant me some grace here. Barcelona FC probably has the best offensive club in the world, boasting a 4-4-3 scheme, utilizing what they call their, I like this, tiki-taka playing style. It sounds more like a bar, frankly, to me, but whatever. Tiki-taka playing style, which is based on short bursts of movements, giving the man with the ball multiple options to pass to different people. And so you'll see oftentimes if you watch Barcelona FC, man with the ball, and then boom, two people move, there's a quick strike. Smart strategy. As I've learned watching football, you have to have a scheme, a strategy to win these games. It's not just based on talent to be a great team. Likewise, the great marriages, like yours, need a winning strategy to remain faithful and monogamous. It's not just going to happen. So Proverbs gives us here both a defensive and offensive strategy to put you in the best position to succeed and staying faithful to your spouse all your days. So first, let's look here at the defensive strategy Proverbs gives us for monogamy. Verse 8, keep your way from her, from that adulterous woman. Keep your way from her. Do not go to the door of her house. So the central defensive strategy in fighting for a faithful marriage is keep away. Keep away from that woman you like to bump into sometimes and like to steal a glance at from time to time when you see her around. Keep away from that man who gives you that little extra attention and captures your thoughts and your imaginations a little bit when you're not with your husband. Do not go to the door of her house, we're told there. What does that mean in modern terms? Number one, it means do not go to the door of her house. (laughs) That's the smartest thing to do, right? You don't go knocking on her door. But it means other things, right? For sure, it means her workstation, her Facebook and Instagram pages, Messenger and WhatsApp. In Cayman, you know, I find that strange relationships are often formed here, right? In Cayman, we can agree on that. It's often good because you often have otherwise unlikely friends who bond strongly, form strong friendships, whose strongest bond is often Jesus, and that's what we want for our church. Unlikely friendships whose strongest bond is Jesus Christ. But this unlikeliness, I think, sometimes makes us excuse certain relationships, particularly certain male-female friendships, which become borderline inappropriate. Too much vulnerability with the opposite gender. Too many offers to give a lift somewhere. Too many propositions for lunch to buy something. Often you know or need a faithful friend to remind you that's just unwise. 
you're doing. You're, you're playing with fire. It's actually Proverbs chapter 6 talks about pretty clearly, if you want to read ahead. I don't think it's too bold to say most every person here, either now or at some point in their marriage, has had that one potential relationship. And Solomon is saying to his son, as he says to us, God is saying to us, stay away. Stay away and then defend yourselves with this truth. If I don't stay away, I am making an investment. An investment of my time, my talent, and my treasure. Look at verses 9 through 10. Stay away lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength. The idea here, what Solomon's basically saying, is you give the best of what you have. That which is meant otherwise to be invested in your marriage or in God's kingdom is instead invested in this other woman. Your, your creativity, your hours, even your money is given to keep these two parallel realities alive in your life. Your marriage and this other thing. Also, if I don't stay away, I'm going to regret wasting my strongest years. Look at verse 11. At the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. Literally, that means when your flesh and body are spent. Back to that investment idea. This is very wise, I think, the way... Of course it is, because it's God's word. But it's very wise. I want to point this out the way it's put here. The exhortation is not premature death. But instead, it's the youth reflecting back at his wasted youth. Which is wise, because in my experience, young people don't often think of their deathbed and the consequences therein. They don't often contemplate the later years. But they will regret, regret wasting their youth. Number of us will regret wasting your youth. So I know from my own experience, I regret many of the ways I wasted time in my 20s. And so that makes me want to spend the rest of my 30s better. There's not many years left in that. But I want to spend that well. Right? And what wisdom is saying, what the father is saying to the son is, hey, you're going to look back and think, man, I really wasted those best years of my marriage, the energy years. If I don't stay away, Here's another point. If I don't stay away, I'm underestimating the social shame. Look at verse 14. You'll end up saying, I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. And they may sound extreme, but it's not. A church is certainly meant to be forgiving and gracious, just as you can absolutely assure that you can be forgiven for adultery through Jesus Christ. But it does leave behind a scar, a noticeable scar. And I don't want to be naive about that, to think that when you come into a church and you've endured that situation and you've endured maybe a divorce or something because of that, that people aren't going to look at you. They are. And it's just a reality. In the, in the great book and film, Lord of the Rings, the protagonist in that film, uh, Frodo, he is stabbed in the upper chest by a morgel blade, by these <clears throat> undead kings. It doesn't matter really who they are, but <clears throat> he survives the stabbing. And, and spoiler alert, uh, he destroys the evil ring he is carrying. He ultimately emerges victorious, and he gets to go off with the elves at the end of his life into basically what we are to imagine heaven being like. And he, the, the, the sails sh- ship off, but as Gandalf explains, he will always carry with him the scar. No matter the ridding of evil, no matter the victory, he'll always carry around that scar. 
Look, that, that, that is the reality. It's not that you can't experience forgiveness or victory or whatever after adultery, but you always carry around a scar with you because you've become one flesh with someone else and it has been ripped away. That's, so the defense, defensive strategy is stay away for all these reasons I just mentioned. You're making an unwise investment. You're going to regret wasting your strongest years. You're, you're going to underestimate the shame you're going to feel at times during your life as a result, even though you're forgiven. But thankfully, Solomon gives us an offensive strategy as well for monogamy. Let's read together here in verses 15 through 19. Let's read the whole thing. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always with her love. So we see here four strategies to stay faithful, built around affection. They're, they're positive strategies. They're strategies of givingness and, and pleasure and delight. So strategy number one we see is to constantly explore each other. And that makes you blush. I get it. But I'm so glad the Bible talks about this. Verse 15, to drink water from your own cistern. A cistern in ancient years would have been a water pit several meters deep, hollowed out from rocky ground. And thus was able to stay a little more fresh because the, the dirt didn't always seep into it, though some did. But the father builds upon this idea in a second line. He says, flowing water from your own well. This is Proverbs' way of saying, yes, this is true, but it gets even better. The underground streams of water that were replenished a well would be a better quality than that which you found in a cistern, right? Because it's new water constantly coming in. It's like the woman says of her husband in Song of Solomon 7.13, besides our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O oh my beloved, new and old. And she's talking about sexual intimacy here. New and old. And Solomon remembers this from, from his own marriage. In other words, he was remembering that how newness doesn't need to come from outside monogamy. Variety doesn't need to come from outside the faithfulness of God's design for marriage. New as well as old can come from within. So it's important to have open communication with your spouse about how to mix up your love light. And if you haven't had that kind of conversation ever with your spouse, have it tonight. You have permission. I'm giving you full permission. and You had that conversation tonight. What do you like? What do you not like? Remember, children should not be in the service. All right? <laughs> but you should have this kind of conversation. This is how you keep fidelity going. Charles Bridges, one of the great sort of older commentators on Proverbs, put it this way, also tender, well-regulated domestic affection is the best defense against the vagrant desires of unlawful passions. What is he trying to say here? He's trying to say relate also to one another as lovers, right? It's easy to get into a rut relating to each other as just roommates or people running on parallel schedules, dinner partners, or especially as tired parents, and you don't really relate to one another as lovers, so even outside the bedroom, back rubs, nicknames, small gifts, picked flowers, uh, just a nice little caress. These are things that, that help variety. It actually helps to understand and you get to know what is pleasing to the other person. You explore that together. And there's even an app.
for, for some of this, which tastefully suggests ways to mix it up in the boudoir. So strategy number two after exploring one another, uh, strategy number two is give yourself to one another. Look at verse 17. Let them be, let these cisterns be for yourself alone and not strangers with you. Notice that actually the possession language throughout this chapter, throughout these verses, I should say. Your own cistern, your own well, yourself alone, your fountain, yet also they are her breasts, her love, which seems contradictory, right? They're, they're going to be yours, but they're also hers. They're going to be yours, but also his. The New Testament, once again, makes clear what Proverbs is hinting at here. 1 Corinthians 7, 4 through 5, it's going to be up on the screen. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a little bit of time, that you may devote yourself to prayer. So there's this voluntary giving of your body to your spouse, and it is incredibly vulnerable and risky to do that. We need Jesus for that, who voluntarily, by the way, stepped out, became a man, and literally gave his body to us before we even asked or knew we needed him. Right? He stepped out and was vulnerable, giving himself for a world that didn't want him. And a marriage is supposed to be a picture of that, of us stepping out and giving ourselves, even our body, before someone we're not completely sure if they're going to accept it. We need Jesus for that, no doubt. I don't know how people do marriage without him. God doesn't ask you, by the way, to do this with just anyone. Give your body, but just one. That's not anyone, but just one. That's the gift of marriage, right? He's just asking you for one person. He's asking you to risk with this gift of your body. So give yourself, right? This is an offensive strategy to prevent people from straying, to prevent one another, to help one another in that way. Strategy number three, pray about intimacy. What's interesting in beginning of verse 18 and 19, we see, let your fountain be blessed. Let, in verse 19, let her breast fill you at all times. This is a baruch. It is a blessing. It is a prayer. And if it feels weird to pray for sex in the bedroom, imagine this father praying this over his teenage son. <laughs> That's an awkward moment, right? Son, <laughs> right? Let me play, pray this blessing upon you. And it sounds like, wow, dad. But that's what's supposed to happen in, in, in sexual intimacy. Dr. Ed Wheaton and his wife, Gay, are right about, by the way, their, their material is great. I'd recommend their books. But Dr. Ed Wheat, Gay Wheat, they're right about sexual intimacy, I think, from the, from the biblical Christian perspective. And they say, pray for God to raise your level of love and sexual interest in each other. Pray for that. I feel weird at first, but pray for it. And then after the act, after the consummation, give thanksgiving to God for your partner and for this gift that you have to share together. Strategy number four, declare your permission. Declare your permission, not out loud. <laughs> Just declare it to yourself. Your spouse is not going to be like excited about this necessarily. Declare your permission for maximum pleasure every time. Not that you're going to have maximum pleasure every time, all right, with one another. Sometimes it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult, particularly when you're learning about each other. But you have the freedom to enjoy yourself every time. In this act, verse 18, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Rejoice is a Hebrew word that can literally be translated to get pleasure. Be pleasure in the wife of your youth. Verse 19, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Fill you, yarwaruka, that's the Hebrew word there. It literally means to drench you. 
be drenched with the light. This pleasure theme is so crucial because a lot of people believe God either thinks sex is really dirty and would just prefer you wear long pajamas everywhere, (laughs) or B, that he begrudgingly allows sex just for procreation's sake, for the propagation of the species. But the command to unite physically through sex actually comes before the command to bear children. Genesis 3.16. Sarah, who was known as the ideal woman in Jewish history, laughed upon hearing she would get pregnant at age 90. And then she says to herself, after I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my husband being old also? Genesis 18.12. And yes, she does mean that kind of pleasure at age 90. One more fun fact, and very fun fact because God has pleasure in us having pleasure in marriage. It comes actually from the the dusty, archaic law of God, Deuteronomy 24. If a man has recently married, he must not be sent to war or have any other duty laid on him. For one year he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he has married. And... To, to know and bring happiness um, does, does mean what you might think it means. To know what pleases her and to spend a year on that. The world says one to two weeks, right? Wedding bells go off one to two weeks. God actually says a year. That's how much he wants to, to enjoy your mate. And that will help you as an offensive strategy not to stray. So, so God then gives us wisdom a right motivation, strategies for not only staying faithful to one person, but finding life and satisfaction all your days because of her, because of him. But to be fair, Proverbs also assumes two willing parties. A husband and a wife willing to listen, right? It assumes that. Yet some of you here are married, but you came here alone. Or you feel alone because your significant other is non-responsive to your efforts in the marriage are not at all on the same page and wanting to, to get wisdom and get godly understanding about how to make this relationship and intimacy work. Maybe it's when the kids entered the picture and they became such the focus and have become that ever since. Perhaps it was a couple of fights about money or about fringe other friends and that, that fight has never really been resolved. It's never really been dealt with. And now so attempts on your part, go unappreciated. Tender words fall on deaf ears. Affections become to feel like a chore. So what happens? Your mind starts to wander. Maybe you've daydreamed about that loyal friend, that responsive coworker, that certain someone who seems to really enjoy your company. So Proverbs goes ahead and asks the question for you in verse 20. Look at that. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? First Solomon answers his own question in verse 21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths, or ponders literally his tracks, those well-worn patterns of thought and action. So basically, Solomon's saying, look, why should you go with her? God sees. He understands. But it's a legitimate question, right? When we're not feeling back from our partner what we wish to feel, why should you be intoxicated with a forbidden woman? Some people say something different, variety, makes me happy. But the answer that most people give is the oldest answer of all, and that is love. Loving someone who loves me back. That's all I'm asking for here. Loving someone who responds, who appreciates me, who gets me. That's what we want, and sometimes why we stray. 
God sees, he understands, and so he wisely pens something through Solomon, very significant here about love. It's repeated three times. It's a little word, tizga, and it means to go astray unconsciously, to be swept away. It's translated here, intoxicated, intoxicated. It literally means to kind of be swept away with someone. And it can be used positively and negatively, which is true about love. Either you can love something that's right and true and be swept away with it, or you can love something that's wrong and perverted and leads to death. But either way, you can be swept away. And swept away is what love really is, right? To be swept away with someone unconscious of yourself, totally self-forgetful because you just enjoy the other person so much. That is love. That's what God has designed for us as human beings, to voluntarily forget ourselves and love and want to please someone else. But how can we do this when we ourselves don't feel loved? We can't. We cannot. Which means some of us are permanently stuck, right? Some of us who haven't felt that for a long time, who've tried everything, we feel stuck. No, there is hope. You're never going to feel fully loved, completed, satisfied, accepted, and secure by your spouse. Your hope can be found in Jesus Christ crucified. Jesus lived the perfect life of love, of self-forgetfulness. While being crucified, guys, he, he made sure his mom had a place to live. He made sure a disciple, a young disciple, had someone to look after him. He made sure to ask his father for forgiveness for the people who were killing him. He made sure to tell a dying thief next to him that he had a place in his kingdom. Then he said, it is finished. Jesus finished what we could not, and he was raised from death so that all who trust in him would be justified. The verdict is in for those who trust Jesus. God loves you. He accepts you. He is satisfied with you no matter what. Do you guys realize that it is only in the message of the gospel that you get the verdict before the performance, right? So a married atheist or agnostic ultimately bases their value on marriage on how well they love or how well they are loved on a performance. The married Buddhist or, or Muslim, performance leads to the verdict. This means that every day you're, you're putting our, we're putting ourselves and our spouses back on trial how much they really love us, how much they really care for us. Am I love? Do I love well? But when you guys trust Jesus, the verdict is settled. God says to you, this is my beloved son or my beloved daughter with whom I'm well pleased. Or put another way, Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now you can form on the basics of God's verdict that you are loved, you are secure, you are accepted and beloved in the eyes of your creator for sure. You no longer have to ask, am I loved, accepted, understood through Jesus Christ? You can forget yourself and love someone else. Your role isn't to make them holy love or to be holy loved by them. But you can give them a taste of the unconditional love with which God loves us for certain because the verdict is in. Let's pray.